0: Welcome to Watershed Chats, a solution-centric mini-series of the Water People podcast. Here, we connect with folks who are transforming social and environmental challenges through their work and play for a healthy and habitable future on planet ocean. This episode is supported by Patagonia, whose purpose-driven mission is to use business to save our home planet. My name is Lauren Hill. My co-host is Dave Rastovich. And today, we're in conversation with Rhonda Harper, U.S. Coast Guard veteran and founder of the NGO Black Girls Surf, which creates access opportunities for Black and Brown women and girls to experience surfing. They are fostering a new generation of recreational and professional surfers. Parallel to the Black Girls Surf training camps, Rhonda Harper is working to develop professional surfing in Africa by dreaming up an African Triple Crown, a series of professional surfing events to highlight indigenous African surfers. Her mission is to continue changing the visuals of surfing and surf culture.
1: So I've been doing what I've been doing taking kids out to the beach since 2005 and I don't think I just do it because that's what I'm supposed to do. I mean in my heart that's what motivates me when I get up in the morning. That's what I think about. This is just something I'm supposed to do. So I don't think How
0: did you come to that understanding that this is what you're supposed to do?
1: when you can't stop talking about it. Case in point, I was stuck in Senegal, right? I was filming for Hadjou Salman in WSL, on uh, her movie, Emerge. And I didn't have a job. It was COVID, I got locked in a country. I don't speak the language. Almost no one except for Hadjou spoke English while I was there, <laughs> literally none. So I have to rebuild my life, right? I didn't wallow in what could have been, right? I excelled in what could be, was I was already there for Sam. she was the first female surfer. So I was already there for her, but why am I here now for me? How am I gonna survive? And so now we opened a surf camp in Senegal. We have a uh, an actual brick and mortar building right on the beach in the Nyof. That's how you excel, that's how you change the map. We had like five girls coming into this thing and now we're at up towards a 40. So it's building us a, a community, but that was the time. That was the period where I knew, okay, this is this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life.
0: How did you come to surfing personally?
1: Big like Leg Bingo, How to Stuff a Wild Bikini, Muscle Beach Party, Annette Funicello, Gidget, um, all of those things, all of those people. But one of the movies that I did see. Had Stevie Wonder in it. There wasn't, you know, if you watch this movie, there's no black people. I, I even go back now and try to, I'm, I'm looking for black people and not scene because it's Malibu, right? It's supposed to be California. You know, we all love each other and all that stuff. And so I was looking, you know, I was a seven year old kid, and the only one, the only person that I attached myself to was Stevie Wonder because little Stevie Wonder debuted in Muscle Beach Party so when you if uh, yeah and and Candy those are the two okay so I was a dancer so it was Candy if you ever watch those movies and you see that girl that's always shaking it you know she's getting that thing she's doing that thing that's Candy it was and I was a dancer at you know I started out ballet and tap at that age and so her dancing and and Stevie Wonder in the same movie like that you know like <laughs> that's it that's that's how I got <laughs> that's how I got started and if you listen to the to the the old guys because I've met most of the guys who were the. Character references for the the movies. I met each one of them. They're like, we hated it when it came out. I mean, we just thought it was garbage. Like, I'm like, you realize I wouldn't be here. <laughs> it's like, they thought it was corny, but we, you know, when you live in Kansas City, you live in Kansas City, Kansas, in the 1970s, and it's hot, and there's nothing else to do. That's what you focused on. Like, you got ready. Like, you literally got dressed. Like, my brothers and sisters and I, we would go upstairs and get dressed have our bowl of popcorn and we would sit down because we knew like all the summer beach party movies were going to, I mean, it was like a whole big old routine. There were six of us, we didn't have anything to do. So that's what we did all summer long.
0: So how did you get from watching beach blanket bingo to actually riding waves? Like the, the, how'd you go from Kansas City to an ocean, first of all?
1: So, so my parents uh, both work for the government. My mom was working for EEOC. And my dad was working for the unemployment office, transitioning vets from the war into society, right? And so my mom had the opportunity to be transferred to another state or city or whatever. And she decided that she wanted to go to California. And there was only two places you could go. One was San Jose, California, which was, at that time, it was like semi-rule, half city, half country. And then... It was Los Angeles where the Beverly Hillbillies lived because that was the other TV show that we watched right so when they said these are the two choices you have you either go live with the Beverly Hillbillies or you go to San Jose California which one you want to go to San Jose California was the most like Kansas City and so that's what they picked and if you know San Jose that area, then, you know, Santa Cruz is right over the hill. So yeah, 20 minutes to get to the beach.
0: <laughs> what, what year was that when you moved, Rhonda? And 1979. And were there other people of color on the sand anywhere to be seen?
1: Uh, no. So when we moved from San Jose, we thought we were, because it was California and everybody said it was diverse, we thought it was going to be different from Kansas City. And it actually was not. Um, So my mom took us off to this beaten track because she didn't want to have to deal with you know, being vibed is, is what my parents call it, being vibed. So she would take us off to the side, to this beach on the side, and it was Lighthouse Beach. So I was actually, when I learned how to body surf for the first time and learned how to boogie board, was at Steamer's Lane and I had no idea that that was where it was. Like I had no clue. Now I go back and I go, man, this is the best place to be. <laughs> and so my mom took us down there. She couldn't, she couldn't swim. She couldn't surf. She hated the water, but she wanted her kids to experience whatever it is that they wanted to experience. And we used to go down there at Lighthouse Beach like three times a week. And I would just get beat down. We thought it was cute. You go down there and you get beat down by waves. You just, you don't know. And then when I was, you know, now that I'm older and I walk down, and go, oh, that's steamers. And I'm looking at those waves that we used to think were cute and we were bottling in. I'm a much wiser adult not to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's Santa Cruz. That's just, it was that first splash. It I was hooked by then. And then after that. My parents were taking us to Hawaii. Like I felt like we were in Hawaii Like every other weekend. Because we could go, right? My parents were, my dad was retired military. So we could go to the Air Force base and we could fly out for like $5. Um, I, I ended up moving there. And this is how we get to the surfing part. I ended up moving there because even though we were in San Jose, there was that same kind of racial thing going on at school. My parents knew I was going to end up in jail, so they sent me off. To be with my sister in Hawaii, and that's how I get to—that's how I get to Hawaii. Finally, to live and go to school, but I get sent to Hawaii, and while I'm there, the Magnum PI crew was there, and uh, one of the guys there taught me how to surf for the first time. I actually was on the board for the first time with one of the crew members. I've, I've been trying to find him for the last twenty years. Uh, I just want to let him know. I just want to say thank you. Like. Thank you for that first experience. Because that first experience would lead me to be who I am now.
2: Yeah, I, I find it really interesting to wrap my head around people's current surfing life and surfing sort of personalities when you start to piece together their experience of surfing throughout their life and the key people that have influenced how surfing fits in to A healthy life or a better life somehow through the surfing experience and so just hearing what you're saying then that you had the experience of that Santa Cruz sort of surf town atmosphere and then you have this character in Hawaii that you haven't been able to find but who was gracious enough to share with you and and tow you into the experience and and help you out there and it just makes me curious about the work you do now when you when you have that experience with people where you see the light turn on in them when they harmonize with a wave, and they don't have to do anything fancy. you don't even have to stand up it's just that that moment. But when you see that light turn on in someone's eyes, how magic that is for us who have been surfing for so long and have caught you know so many waves. Can you speak to that? Is that something that you still feel now? You got forty people there that you work with in Senegal. Do you still see that and just get lit up as well?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm grinning now. You know what I mean? Like you, you know that feeling. You, you see it. You, you can feel it when they feel it. You can feel it. It's contagious. I'm in the water with them. It's it's a contagious feeling, and it, it. not only contagious, it's addictive because then you want to see more kids do the same thing you want them to understand. When I went to Hawaii, I was an angry kid. I know what surfing did for me. I know how I came home. I know who I was before I went and I know who I was when I came home. I was two different people all together and the change all came from the ocean and respect and being out with nature. So when I see those girls light up and I see them light up, Every day, all day. If one, there's a one of our girls who, no matter what, she just has the biggest grin on her face all the time. I mean, she can wipe out, and she's wiping out. I'm sure with her mouth open because she's smiling. Like, I love taking pictures of her because she is like. There's actually there's two of them, but this one particular one is like pure joy of riding waves, and it's just, it's amazing. Those are the girls in Senegal, and I mean, those girls came from not having anyone to guide them, right, and, 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 and with no hope, like, no one was thinking about having these girls, you know, change their lives into these, these circles. How'd you Saab did, she called, she, she was in California, and she was like, Rhonda, can we start this thing in Senegal, and I said, of course. I mean, she saw it. So when she when we're actually out with the girls still to this day, that was like two years ago, I think, two, like two and a half years ago. These girls are still stoked, like just like this the very first day. So I can't wait. We're going to we're here in uh, South Africa right now. And on the 18th of April, I have another 43 girls coming from a township here called Crossroads and we're going to do a girls' day out. I usually do one a year. There's a mother's day out that comes out on Mother's Day. And then there's the girls' day out. And that's going to happen on the 18th here. But um I'm so excited. Like They sent me a message. And I'm telling you, I get messages from all over the world. This was the cutest message I've ever... Because they asked all of the girls. Apparently, I didn't hear the question. I just heard the answer on the recording. And I'm going to assume that the question was... Do you want to go and have a surf day? And they responded with yes. And you can hear all forty-three girls in the background. Yes, we're going to do that. <laughs> it's
0: absolutely <laughs> like
1: like you know, you're in your career, in your whole career. And I hope everyone, everyone has these moments. This is not a job for me. I hope everybody has these times in their life where they can. Changed or they have the opportunity to help change somebody's life. Because once you do that, once that, that light is turned on on those girls, like you were saying before, it doesn't go off. That flame is lit. And for us to be here and do these days out, this isn't the the last day out. I have to leave here in May and then go to California. I have to go back home. I've been in Africa for like two years. I'm like, I'm never going home. (laughs) But I have to go home finally and open the Los Angeles camp and get that officially up and running. But I'm going to see that stoke again.
0: A major part of your work has been specifically training Black girls and Black women to be competitive surfers. And I'm really interested in why you chose competition surfing in particular. I mean, it's definitely, well, it hasn't been historically the most lucrative professional sport to be involved in. And there are so many barriers in terms of, yeah, race and gender and socioeconomic status. And that's the case with other sports too. But I was just really curious about what drove you to want to expand the definition of pro surfer.
1: I was tired. I was a journalist for a while. Uh, just by happenstance, I just happened to, to end up writing on surfing and black surfing in particular because i was with an agency called black athlete sports network and when they send you out on assignment first of all they asked this is the most off the wall question i've ever been asked is do you want to write because we've never heard of black surfers and it was a black sports network right and so i said of course because no one was doing it at the time and uh After a while of being sent on assignments, I even was sent to Hawaii to do the Triple Crown and was sent to U.S. Open to report on that. And you go and you sit in these press boxes for hours and you don't see anybody that looks like you. You don't even see a representative of something that looks could possibly be you. And then at some point, right, you want to have further information, because what I wanted to do was not just report oh so and so's on a wave and blah 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 and just be you know people oh she's not really a writer she doesn't really know what she's talking about so what I did was I took the ISA judging and officiating course so that I would understand point totals so now I know what I'm looking at it's not just me just out there just writing and and not knowing what I'm talking about it's actually me understanding how contests go and uh after doing that for so long, I was just like, you have to put the laptop down and get in the front and start working on seeing people so that you can write on them. See, at the time, I was like, OK, see people so you can write on them. When I said that, I really didn't have a clue as to how serious this the situation was. Like, I'm looking at Australia, no Blacks. Looking at Africa, no Blacks. you looking at Africa, no Blacks. Wait a minute, what happened? OK, it's California, no Blacks. I mean, everywhere you go, Kuwait, no guys, what's going on? Okay, now you have to do something. Now you learned how to run a contest because you've taken that course. Let's do something Let's out of the box. Let's just throw a contest with just African surfers so that sponsors, this is the intent, so that sponsors could see that there was talent there. So trying to find that talent was easy on the men's side trying to find that talent on the women's side. We had equal already, so we knew we could get men from all over the world because it was a pan-afro contest that was being held in Sierra Leone in 2014. So we knew we had enough men. There were 12 boys that were just in Freetown, so you know we knew there was more people out there. And we started looking at the associations and nobody had any girls. And the associations are the ones that are linked to the Olympics. So how do you get to the Olympics? How do you progress if there's no pathway for progression and these kids don't know that there actually is a way that they can compete they just don't know how and KK in Sierra Leone wanted to compete and she was the first and only girl now I'm not going to tell the first and only girl that we're not going to find somebody for her to compete against that's just I mean (laughs) does it sound right and also my counterpart was the national women's champion of Jamaica and so we couldn't have her surf against KK because the playing field is not even like she would just we wanted to find girls that were up and coming that we could put in this contest with her so we could showcase that Africa talent is rising well, we could find any and so then we went outside of the association and started looking at the surf camps and that's how we found Haji Song hmm. we found her at a surf camp in Senegal and and Instantaneously, I was like, who is this girl? She's holding a board. She wasn't surfing. I didn't see a wave. I hadn't seen a wave, nothing. I said, who is this girl? She's holding a board. Okay, so I contact the camp, and I say, who is this girl? And they're like, oh, that's Audrey Song. She's an instructor here. Oh. She's an instructor, so she's, a, she's an instructor, she has to go surfing. Right? So I, gotta, I said, can you give me your contact information? They said yes. So I contacted her and the first question I asked her, I said, do you want to compete in surfing? And she said, yes. I said, do you want to go pro? And she said, yes. Okay. When you asked the question, why did I choose competitive surfing, we were missing. In that arena, right? And at that time, we weren't identifying, self-identifying ourselves the way we were now. 2008, I saw Sula and Narisa, North Shore, Hawaii, Alihi Beach during the Triple Crown, right? We weren't identifying ourselves as Afro-Latina, Afro-this, Afro-that, Afro-that. At that time, I saw her on the beach. I took a picture of her. I said, she could be black, but I'm not gonna walk up to her because I felt like that was, you know, inappropriate. And so I just let it go. And then a few years ago, while I was building Black Girl Surf IG and I'm looking for surfers and I see this girl that looks like the girl that I took a picture of. So I say to her, "Uh, is this you? I just sent her the picture and I said, "Is is, is is this you? And she said, Yeah, that's me. I said, I was there at that contest in 2008 and I took this picture, but I didn't know that you were black. And then find out that Wiggly Donis, Wesley Donis, uh, the whole entire family surfs like the Narisa and Donis. Those are names that we know because Wiggly was on the, the world tour for a minute. Nobody was labeling them as black or afro-latin they were just Brazilians that's what they were calling them and so you miss you miss that count you can't count when they don't count you right so there was Sule risa down there there was Erica Prada who was literally working with the, the ASP at the time and she was an announcer and commentator in Brazil and then there was Nuala Cuesta who was down there and she was the very first Black female to surf. But until you put together an IG or something like that, you don't know. If I would have had IG in in 2014, that contest would have went a a whole different way. And we might not even had a Black girl surf right now. But because we, we only had KK and then we had Haju, I was like, let's bring them to California to train. And then, you know, because in 2014, Ebola, this is my second pandemic, Ebola shut us down the first time. And then, well, actually the third pandemic because Donald Trump was, <laughs> was, 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 uh, was elected in 2016. So he was definitely a pandemic because he put in the, the Muslim ban and all the travel bans. So then we had to close that down and all the ambassadors were all fired. So we, you know, in order to get visas, you need ambassadors. You need people working in the embassies can't do it in that. So 2016, these are years that are just going by. And I say, okay, that's it. Bring them to California to train. We heard that the Olympics could possibly be a thing and we didn't know. And then we were able to get Haji out and we weren't still to this day. Black like on surf, there would not be one without KK. Still to this day, we have not been able to get KK out of Sierra Leone because of immigration. So I have not met this young girl that I met when she was 14 and been taken care of putting through school. I've not been able to meet her yet because of immigration and pandemics. Those are the two things that have kept us apart. So, (laughs) so now we find out that the Olympics are coming. We get hot to California. You know, we find out, Oh, it is an Olympic thing. We put out the the SOS is what you, what you saw was our, our financing. And, uh, the rest is, is history. I mean, from that moment, from that very moment where I had I called ABC, specific reporter, because he had already done a story on I was in construction, so he had already done a construction story on me. So I was able to just call him up and say, Listen, I have a West African surfer who needs money to go to Olympics. Can you help? And with like 45 minutes, he was like, Where are you? I said, I'm in Santa Cruz at Steamers Lane. He was there. So after that, Black Girl Surf just took off. And it is what it is today because of the help of of people who saw the vision, could see further than most people in the surf industry. And we did not. This is why we have worldwide popularity instead of surf community popularity. I never went to the surf media at all because I knew what the challenge was. I knew there was a racism problem. I knew there was a female problem. I already knew all the problems and all the obstacles. Was I was, st- I was working in the industry, so I already knew. I'm going to the contest. I can see there's no Black people. You already know. Don't go to that. So I went to mainstream media, BBC, ABC. Anybody that was listening, I was calling. They At some point, at one point, I, I made the first call to ABC, and I never had to call anybody after that. Because once that story hit, it was over. And we've been telling this story for now two years. But what I want people to see is not the story that's behind us, but the future that we built since then. We've been able to work with the WSL to do a bunch of wonderful things. Not just the WSL, with brands as well. And trying to get them to understand that unless you diversify you're going to become irrelevant in this industry. You're already everybody's already broke. I watched Billabong stock go from, I think it was at eleven dollars at one point, all the way down to like twenty five cents, and then they stopped selling shares. If you don't know your industry, then you won't know how to navigate it. You already knew. You can't go to Billabong and ask them for sponsorship because they're going through some things. If they stop selling shares, that means they're they're losing business so don't go to <laughs> <laughs> Yeah,
0: I mean we're we're both in the camp where we feel like we're really interested in surf culture. We understand as you do that the surf industry is steeped in all of these deep biases and old ways of doing business and understanding the world. And so, yeah, surf culture and yeah. diversification and, and taking the power back, as you've done, in changing the definition of what it means, what it looks like to be a surfer, that's, that's the future of surfing.
1: Yeah, that's the, that's the future, and that's the… but if you're going to be in this, and competition is a little bit different than recreational surfing. it was a lot different, because we have different ways of living, right? Ours is mostly built on the physical and the fitness nutrition aspect. When you're looking at surfing competitively, when you're looking at recreational surfing, most recreational surfers they're like, "I had a bad day at work. I need to go excel. you and know, I just need to do this." And on ours, we're we're so high performance, like we hardly ever come down, which is why we added the surf therapy program in there, so that you, you know, your coaches are you have you at a certain level. This you're you're here. And then if you add surf therapy in there, you can kind of level this out so you have the, the, the perfect surfer, whether you know, you're know you balancing your fitness, your training, and then who you are going to be in the world of surfing is different. Like Haji, she has to worry about who she is. A lot of surfers don't have to worry about that. She has to worry about what she does in the world of surfing because now she's like the first to come in and do this kind of thing that we're doing now. So she has to be aware of of herself now self-confidence and, and pride knowing that she's changing the face, the visuals, literally changing the visuals. Because now you see all of these subsequent camps that are coming out. And we're looking at that like we don't look at that as competition. We look at that as a great thing because we were only we that's what the whole point was. Like like it would be, you know, the whole point was to build on this not to just hold on to the treasure trove of black surfing, but to expand it worldwide. And I think that's why the international component of us has worked so well, it's because we didn't say, oh, this is just a US company. We just, we went out to different countries.
2: And I think that's really crucial because the, the California surf, and actually specifically the Southern California, Irvine, radically industrialized, branch of the surfing tree there has been the loudest aspect of the surfing industry for decades now and have been so dominant in the stories that they just keep rehashing over and over and again. And and it's so fucking boring. Like, it just... It dr- yeah, drives us it crazy and that's why we are doing what we do with this and lots of other people are doing what they're doing to broaden and diversify s- the storytelling in surfing. And that's something that I was curious about too is, is that h- how do you feel then now, especially because you've been in, in Africa for the last two years, getting away from California and us here in, say, Australia and New Zealand, I'm originally from New Zealand, so I, I think the surf culture there is relatively similar to Australia in some ways, where for quite a few years, the the sheen and the gloss and the sparkle of American media, uh, especially coming from the surf companies that had so much money there for so long, it's kind of lost that now. That sparkle that was wowing so many people is kind of gone and I think that's actually a really good thing because it's opening up so many more windows and opportunities and areas of conversation that were previously just dominated by hyper-competitive, hyper-commercialized and sexist and racist perspectives. Uh, and so I was thinking before when you said, oh, you're, you're going to be going back to California." I'm wondering how that's going to be for you, considering that there's no surfer magazine anymore. The industry's sort of just vaporizing. The WSL is trying its best to stay relevant and keep alive and keep pumping through this difficult time. But it is a radically different place that you're going back to compared to two years ago when you left. It is. And this is
1: what I said about knowing the industry and mentioning those companies, because what happens is, is, because you didn't diversify it, because you let it get stale. They let it get stale. They, they oh, 100%. I stopped. I, the last, I can tell you, the last server magazine that I bought was Andy Irons was on the cover. Like, I, it was literally like be, right before he passed away. Like, I, I was done. I was out of the surf media, and that's why we didn't go to the surf media. When I went to Hawaii, my parents bought me a. Hope chest. All girls get a Hope chest, right? They're hoping that you're going to do something wonderful in your world. So they give you some sheets and some dishes and all this and that. I didn't take any of that stuff. I took all that stuff and set it on my bed, and I put all surf magazines (laughs) in my trunk with some journals and some pins, you know, some art pins because I was an artist, right? I don't have that feeling for surf magazines anymore. I don't have any feeling for surf media anymore. And I say this a lot, so it's not offensive to them. They've already heard it. They have, even in, even even writing black stories now, even after the, pad, the paddle out, and they only had a couple of more days, their time was ticking and they were desperate when they started writing about the paddle outs because they left us out of the paddle outs and we we're the ones that started the paddle outs. So we knew that there was a, a bias already because we were telling the truth. Black Girl Surf was telling the truth. We were telling the truth. We've been telling the truth since.
0: Are you talking about the paddle outs for solidarity?
1: Yeah, that was Black Girl Surf. (laughs) So, yeah. So when that happened, we were left out, right? We had been left out. We've been left out of those magazines for one reason, and one reason only, is that we tell the truth. I tell you, you're racist. I tell you, you've been racist. If you can count the numbers of how many magazines that you had, uh, a black person on a cover, and it just ends up being Buttons. I mean, Buttons was, you know, his height was in the 70s and the 80s. Okay, they were in 2021, and you haven't diversified the covers at all. It still says, how do you expect to sell another magazine? I, even if it was the day that Surfer Magazine went down, I went on their site and I said, thank God. Because it ends that hold that they had on the surf industry where the imagery had to be coming from them. Now you see Hurley start putting out people of color. Now you see Billabong start putting out people of color. This didn't happen. Go back. Go back last year. Go back last year and see. Go on one of their sites and look and tell me how many African Americans they had or how many. Mexicans or how many Hawaiians I mean literally they had cut even the surf industry even cut Hawaiians out of their own contest like it had to evolve because it 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 had imploded so the WSL struggling now um is a blessing because now they see what I was talking about about diversifying if you don't diversify where's your customer coming from where's your customer base from anybody paying attention to the customer base so that's when I started looking at the stocks and and understanding how all of these things play into this business, and then adding in the fact that it's a fashion industry, right? All the surfers are are product placement. They're they're, they're nothing but models in the water. That's the only difference. If there was France, they'd be running the walkway. You know, this is it. They put you in a bathing suit and all this stuff. And all of these things needed to change in order to be able to make $5. I said I had to create a whole category, a whole category. Imagine, you have menswear, womenswear, you have, you have white women, you have you know Spanish, Mexican, Latina women, you have all these people, and then you don't have black women. I had to create an entire category by putting out black girl surf, by doing the the footwork on the ground for the companies to even shine a light on a black female surfer. There's a lot of work that went into that, that process. So when you talk about culture, you have to look at what makes a culture because it's not the surfers that are on the street. Uh, It's definitely not them. It's right there in the office, they create that culture. And until you go into that office and you say, look, in, we, that culture's gone, you're gonna have to recreate it, we're gonna have to do something else, it won't change. I went to the companies and said, it's time for a change, like sit down with them. I don't know anybody else, and everybody's like, Rhonda, I don't know anybody else who actually like, went in and started talking to companies. I talk to companies all the time about diversifying and what it means to your bottom line. Because that is what they're there for, right? They're there for their bottom line. We're here for the freedom and be able to compete and and, and have a platform where, where we can shine too and we're not excluded from, from the process. But unless you go and talk to the man who's running the process and needs to understand, I've changed so many people's minds just by going in and talking to them. And they had some bias they didn't even realize. Well, I I just thought black people, and I heard it before, I just thought black people didn't like water and, you know, they don't swim and blah, blah, blah. I heard this and I heard that. Well, that'll keep you excluded from from a sport because you have people who are still spreading this. Well, that does speak to the fact that there
0: have been very real, very racially based barriers for people of color to have access to beaches to pools to the opportunity to learn how to swim not to mention to surfboards and wetsuits and yeah how do you navigate that conversation around the historic lack of black surfers and, and surfers of color
1: just by telling the truth just by telling you that your fees are too high and giving you an example of how they're too high. there's an example I normally give. If I was a West African girl and I wanted to join WSL and I, and I knew how to go about it, the first thing I have to do is pay $150 for a membership fee. right? So if my parents make $720 U.S. a year, what are the chances that my parents... Even if as talented as Haji is, what are the chances that my parents are going to save $150 U.S. just for the membership? That's not even the entry fee. That's just how that... And then I have to travel, right? Thank God Haji had us because we paid for every single thing for the last four years for Haji, right? Or she would not be where she is right now. Every single thing we pay for. She needs something, we're going to send it to her. They don't have the money. So how I go about this conversation is, is just to give that example of just this, just this one surfer. Now this surfer just happened to change the world, but she had financial backing behind it. Now imagine if all the little West African kids had it, or all the South African kids had it, because there's some serious talent in Africa. There's so much talent in Africa it's almost overwhelming. But you they will never get to the point having these conversations with the powers that be right whether it's the WSL or it's Hurley or who whoever it may be WSL I sat down with them 2 years ago and told them exactly what the problem was first of all the fees were too high second of all the the traveling location and people trying to if you cancel every contest in Africa how's that african going to continue on into the QS. There's no way. There's no possible way, right? Because they've just cut it off. Especially now we're all regional. So each region is now going to hold a series, all these series of contests, right? And those are going to get you to the challenger series. and That challenger series may get you on the CT. But if you are in the QS, everybody knows that if you're in the QS, you're working 20 times harder than the ones on the CT just to get the point totals. How can you afford that? Okay. Well, Let's start breaking down the fees. Let's start adding in scholarships. Let's start, you know, going to the communities and asking the sponsors, listen, hey, we have 10 surfers. Can you sponsor them? Lessons? You know, This is an on-the-ground boot theory that has been working for me the last two years. Mm. It's
0: so fantastic to hear about where you're helping to lead African surf culture because How radically has the history of African surf culture been left out of the dominant narrative of surfing, especially considering that some of the earliest reports, some of the earliest accounts of witness surfing, they did happen to be by white European people, but were of surfers in Ghana and, of course, like kids grow up on coastlines anywhere with breaking waves? Of course, there are surfers. Of course, there have been established surf cultures since time immemorial because it's an efficient thing to do to learn how to ride a wave. But it's also just crazy, ecstatically fun, and uh, that's
1: universal. Oh, of of course. And and Haju is from from Angor, where where they filmed *Endless Summer* and for those guys it's it's amazing to watch it now because those are those were the movies that influenced us as kids but then when you go you know and you you really go into the community and you start talking to people people have been surfing there you know they tried to make it look like oh we're in gore this is the first time this has ever been surfed and blah 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 and this thing and everybody in the in the village is like no they didn't call they didn't call it surfing they didn't call surfboards uh surfboards they, they everybody used something else if you go I was staying in Angora for a year and I was living in in an apartment right on the top and underneath, literally 10 feet from the building. The kids were teaching each other how to surf. And one was like the youngest was like a five year old teaching a one year old how to surf on a board, on a wave in the in the little lagoon that they had in front of their house. Haju trains at that Angora right, which is a world class wave that was shown in Endless Summer, that hotel was in one of my windows. The hotel where they stayed is in one window. And where she trains and where our girls train, the young girls train, is the Angle right That's a world-class wave. So you can't say that they came and they were first. This is so crazy. It was like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs>
2: This is a constant story in surfing in a version of modern surfing history. And there's an amazing book called Waves of Resistance by a Hawaiian professor, Isaiah Helekanuhi Walker. And he tells the exact same story about the North Shore of Oahu and when all the big guns, the top shot Californian white fellas were coming to the North Shore and conquering these empty wild waves. Uh, No, there was a handful of local, amazing, strong local Hawaiian surfers surfing those breaks at Sunset Beach and all the other amazing spots there who were just excluded from those very early surf films that were building Californian surf culture that would spread around the world. But that was exactly the same kind of example where they were just edited out of the storytelling and that has happened... All over the world. And so, what that makes me think of is okay, if that's the track record of the industry and these main storytellers in the industry,
0: white colonialism, basically. white
2: colonialism, and that then led towards the establishment of this tour. And the tour also has a, a terrible track record on the North Shore and in Hawaii of treating local Hawaiian oh, people. Yeah. And so for me, you know, because I turned my back on that world as a teenager uh, and I was deeply embedded in it and I feel as though the opportunity for kids to have a surf contest experience is a great thing. It should be available for everyone though. When I've spent time with so many amazing, talented surfers over the years and I ask—I love asking this question, what was it that would get you to the surf contest all the time when you were a kid? It was hanging out with their buddies at the beach all day. It was never the sole reason of being a winner and being on the podium for that one day until the next event, the next weekend or whatever. It was to be there with other people and to have that feeling of, camaraderie and togetherness and to be getting pounded in a lineup and look across in the whitewater and see your buddy right there getting pounded to and you're laughing as you go into the whitewater and sharing all of that together is really key and something that's been happening in australia in recent history is that we have these very very sporty serious high performance centers that have popped up and it's something that's been very much complicating the surfing experience for kids with hyper-competitiveness. And I've met a bunch of kids who have um, lost their love of surfing through it being complicated with competition. So something I was interested to just hear what your perspective with this is that it's such a small percentage of people who who go through the surfing competition world and get to a point where they can – feed themselves and their families and look after some of their kin um, through financial success in in competitive surfing. Um, And what happens for all the others who perhaps go through the experience of contests and maybe come out the other end feeling like surfing's been a little more complicated um, than it, then it could have been that, the, the, that I guess that surf therapy thing that you were talking about before, that, that aspect of it is addressing that. But I was just curious what, what your experience has been so far with uh, young women coming in and learning the surfing experience and doing competitions and and how, like, really fired up people are to be winners or are they just really loving their, being there with others and feeling a sense of community in that space?
1: I think if I use Senegal, I mean we have we have different camps. Maria Eduardo is in Brazil. She's been competing. I don't know, pro, and you would think that this girl has been surfing for twenty years, and she's probably she's twelve years old. <laughs> um, so she has a she she has a she has a different mentality about it. She really does want to compete. And what we're doing here is this is a competition camp. Number one. On the second side of that. We have the, the what used to be called the Nappy Roots Camp is now the black girl surf minis because the minis felt left out of the black girl surf label. So now they just want to be minis. And so we're like, OK, so they're black girl surf minis. But we have the minis. And so if you don't want to continue on your journey of of competition but you still want to be you know you still want to surf and you still want to hang out with your friends we have that component too when we're talking about the the competition aspect of that we're looking at it from from all the angles right we're trying to bring the fun back into competition so this is what we did with the, the competition that we're having right now with the girls there are so many things that are layered in that you know you go to a competition you check in you get your your Jersey and, and, and you're off and you're heating. So there's other things that we're putting together, even for the parents that they can come out and have. So it's going to become an experience, right? So what we're trying to do is, and I, and I said this repeatedly, even to the WSL is that this particular black girl surf and the ASI in totality is about bringing that fun back where you don't feel like that pressure is on you from the competition rounds like it used to be and I think the WSL is even kind of trying to relax that too right I know that people are bringing in psychologists to deal with you know, any angst or any anxieties that we used to go through. I mean, we didn't, like, a whole bunch of this stuff we didn't have. Like, when I was skateboarding, nobody had, like, a psychologist, skateboard <laughs> psychologist you could go to. So, like, I felt like I couldn't skate today. And that's why, you know, nobody had that. I really need
2: that. to talk <laughs> about it. I really need to talk <laughs> about to, that. I way. need to
1: discuss this. But they, there is, and I'm going to tell you why it's, it's, it's important, especially with these girls. These girls come from backgrounds who are already anxiety-induced, right? Uh, They come from very small villages. They're going to be judged on their their race and how they look and their body types and all this stuff. So we try to prepare them and make this fun for them. So I know I have a very serious surfer who's going to go on to the Olympics. I already know that for a fact. Haji will go on to the Olympics. We know that for a fact. But any of the girls that don't want to go in... So this is what we do. We have days where you can learn how to run the camera, where you can learn how to just run the social media, and so you give them choices. But they still want to be around surfing; they still want to surf. But now there's other jobs that we need to do, partnering with Decathlon and having an internship where they run part of Decathlon, and they they're still here with Black Girl Surf. But then. You know, once they get old enough or they've trained long enough, then they go on to be able to have jobs and management throughout the companies. Like keeping them within the surf industry, but really dialing in on what the actual need is a surfer. Before, people were just like, you just go surf. Why, why are you standing here? Like, go surf. You know, like your heat is on. And that's all they cared about. But that's not what we care about. We care about the what happens after. Right. That's why we educate you. You pay for your education because we know how surfing is. And competitive surfing, it's a very, very short-lived career if you have one at all. But if you don't have schooling, then you go back to your country and you're relegated back to chores or being married off early and this thing and, and that thing. You know, and so we're trying to put in different categories within the surf industry that you're not stuck in one. You can be any of these things. Look, I wanted to be a pro surfer now i just help pro surfers it was my dream to be one i missed that boat now you just help everybody else you know what i'm saying what do they say there's a, there's a saying those that can't do coach <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, it's so fantastic to hear you um say all of that Rhonda, and like and, and and that you're you're living it it's just great that you're enacting all these deep feelings and deep thought it's obvious that you've really really considered what it is you're working on and all of the ripples that come out from doing such things, such radical things too. And um, it's just really encouraging because I know for myself that being embedded in the surf industry for quite a while, I, man, uh, I really have struggled for quite a long time to find anything that positive and that healthy about it at all.
1: And I had to come back with that attitude. Mm. I couldn't have a, a, the, the attitude that I already knew what the surf industry was before I like just took a dive. Like, you, I had to do a bunch of research to prepare myself, even mentally, for what I was going to be involved in. I knew there was going to be a lot of sexism, a lot of racism. It, you know, One of the things that I wanted to do, and this is really weird, but it's, it worked. One of the things I wanted to do is I wanted to dress down when I had these meetings, or or I was on the beach or whatever. You know, you don't see me in bikinis and all this other stuff. As the distraction, right? Then they start focusing on you and 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 who you are. I wanted to focus on the knowledge so that when I walk into your office, I can talk to you sensibly, and you look at me like, "Where did she get all this information?" Well, it was there, and the information was there. I just researched it, made sure that I mastered what I was saying. And really having a, a goal set in which we were able to do. I just want to say that when your dream is realized and you go, oh, my God, that really happened. So I'm at that particular point. but um,
0: Specifically, yeah, do, it, you f- do you feel like you're at that point specifically with Africa Surf International? Was that your that was dream that you are bringing to fruition right now?
1: Mm-hmm. That's exactly what it was. Black Girl Surf was a detour. Like we didn't have black girls, so we had to detour off to get black girls for Africa Surf International. So when the WSL asked, because I mean we were we were trying to hold a contest in Senegal, which is super difficult, I was asked by the WSL if I would pick up Africa Surf International. I asked they asked Black Girl Surf if Black Girl Surf would hold the contest, and I and I, it, I it's a nonprofit. That's it it's within the Africa surf international um, umbrella. So it's just one of our programs that's in the Africa surf family. But when they asked, I said, of course. And then they said, came back about 10 minutes later and they said, well, can you use Africa surf international for these contests? And I said, of course, that's, that was the whole point. That's when, <laughs> this is when you come full circle. Like, of course. So yeah, this is the, when you work hard and this is what I said, and this is why I'm surfing now. As I, I said, I promised myself I would not get in the water while there was this racial divide, while this was this socioeconomic. I, was just, I personally, in my mind, boycotted. I didn't have to say it out loud. I didn't want to get in the water. I didn't want to surf. I wanted to work, work, work until I felt I was done. And then I can surf for the rest of my life. Till so now until the day I die to surf. But if I took time off to worry about everything that happens in the lineup or in the in the community itself, we wouldn't be here right now. Like, none of us would be here. If I was just a regular surfer and I, and I was just surfing for recreation and not anything else, we wouldn't be here right now. Because there was nobody picking this up. <laughs> no one.
0: I, I was reading an article last year about, um, just to change direction a little bit, but I'll bring it back to you. I'll get there. Um, Ghana's Ministry of Tourism, Arts, and Culture started extending invitations to African-Americans, asking them to resettle in Ghana, and especially if they feel unwelcome in the U.S. And the, the Minister of Tourism, Arts, and Culture basically was saying, we welcome you with open arms, come back to your homelands. Africa's waiting for you. Um, and I was just wondering as as an African American woman growing up in Kansas City, if you had a sense or connection with African culture and if that called you throughout your life or if that was something that you came to as an adult.
1: You no, know, it had been calling me since the day I saw Roots for the first time in the 70s. Right? So I always wanted to, and my and my father was stationed with Alex Haley. Who wrote that book? And they both went through the Coast Guard with a whole bunch of racial things that they had to go through. Alex Haley it will eventually leave the Coast Guard because it's 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 racist. But it has always been in my DNA to go back. I didn't know when. I kept saying, if you if you talk to people like Quizzy Kika and people that are on the tours and whatnot, they're like, ronald has been coming to Africa for at least since two thousand and seven. So I started this whole thing. It started out as a camp for the amputees in Sierra Leone. I was really inundated in the culture of Sierra Leone before I even got stuck into Senegal. But once I got to Senegal, and I did read that article about Ghana, but I was already a resident. I I felt bad because I was already a resident of Senegal when I saw that about Ghana. And I was like, dang! You didn't have to go through all of the things that you have to go through over there. But um, they were just like, come on, we're like, hey, but Ghana sounded really good, but I was in Senegal.
2: (laughs) Oh wow. And so you're so you are heading back to you're heading to LA to set up camp there and in the back of your mind do you feel like you'll you'll be there, you'll get that job done and then you'll go back to Africa?
1: I'm already like I already am done with that camp. Like in my mind, I've already opened it and I'm on plane on my way back to South Africa. Mm. I mean I even I have a fiance and even the advice there was like you no longer belong here. Your spirit does not belong here anymore. It literally has left the building because this morning when I got up, I got dressed, blah, blah, blah. Colin came over, blah, 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 we did that. Okay. If I'm in the United States, I'm getting dressed. I'm wearing a hoodie right now. I'm not wearing a hoodie. I'm not wearing this hat. I got my hair wrapped up and probably have some stuff on, some makeup and all this stuff just so they don't mistake me for a black male. I'm not in the mood for that. When I get up in the morning, I just look terrible. When I answer the door, I just look terrible. Yeah, I don't care. It it, it, it is what it is. You know what I'm saying? I I don't have to dress up to not get hit in the head. This is what I used to tell my friends. I used to do crazy stuff in the car all the time. I I go, you guys remember I'm black, right? So you guys can, like, drink and be doing crazy stuff in the car while I'm here because i am be the first one to get knocked in the head. They're going to ask y'all questions afterwards but I'll be the first one <laughs> to <laughs> to go down. No, I'm not, I'm not in the mood. I don't have that problem here in Africa. I can take mm. an Uber, no problem. They're not like not picking me up because I'm in a certain section of town. You know, I walk the streets without having to feel some type of unsafety, you know. And this is what I want for my girls, not only just in the United States because this is, That racism thing, it goes on to different continents. So we're not just in San Jose. I mean, we're not just in California and South Africa and Senegal. We're in Jamaica. So we have to worry about what the social climate is there. We have to worry about the social climate in Brazil, which is horrible and the COVID numbers are up. But we're just always constantly worrying about where this is going. And somebody is sitting at, well, somebody, me, (laughs) is sitting on a computer trying to figure out what's going on in each country to make sure that our Athletes stay safe, right? Here in South Africa, we have that gender based violence, right? Or in Senegal, we have the patriarchal system that doesn't allow women to do certain things, and you're regulated to these kind of things, and they don't want to see you do those things. So everywhere we go, we're always conscious of the culture, the social climate that's going on. And, you know, the United States (laughs) is probably the worst one. Like, the worst one, the only one I don't want to deal with is the United States. I, I really. I mean, on my own country, like I can, I can talk to the Minister of Sports here and Sierra Leone and, and build and build and build and build and build within these structures. But when it comes to the United States, their system of of equity is, is unmatched by far and no one has that. But No one will know that until they come out of the country. Watching the news in the United States is the most depressing thing I've ever seen in my life. Like watching the things that go on and some of the just like the pettiness and just when you look at that and you're like you're an adult now and you think this is how you're talking about your identity brand. This is the brand because the United States has a great marketing team. Like whoever said that they were first, America first and all that, they have super marketing team like i want that marketing team but it's nothing of what they say it is it is absolutely like smoke and mirrors every day you walk down the street i hope they get better uh with that that illness that they have but until this is why we're here for the next generation right so the next generation coming out will be stronger they'll be well equipped they'll be educated they'll understand what it is they're actually watching and how, when they go from this country to this country, what's the difference? Oh, the Africans may never want to go to the United States. They went once and they, and they see how they're treated, but they, they'll they go to Brazil because they'll treat them better, right? So this is a, It's a learning experience for, for all of us. I know it was a learning experience for me because they kept telling me that I, my whole life, they tell black people, you don't want to go to Africa. Don't you? You know, white people are always telling you, go back to Africa. And black people are all like, well, you go back to Africa. Because they scare you into not coming to Africa. <laughs> they do. When you're a little kid, they you don't want to go to Africa. they starving over there. They, they come over here and it looks like San Jose, California on any given day. I can go to one of these. Like Cock Bay looks exactly like Santa Cruz. Musenberg looks like. Santa Monica, or well, one side of it, you know how Santa Monica goes into Venice, so <laughs> so, so this side of Museenburg looks like Santa Monica, and then that other side of it looks like Venice. But I mean, it looks like my home, and they have more people here that look like me in the water. That's the most surprising thing. That's the best part about being in Africa, as opposed to being in the United States. I don't have to worry about being in the water here and somebody saying something to me. But if I'm in California... Especially now, going through all of the stuff that I did with the paddle outs and all the stuff that I've said about racism and surfing and blah, blah, blah. Do I feel safe getting in the water anywhere in the United States? No. <laughs> no, not at all. Mm. That's just how it is. That's a difference. So, uh, yeah, I'm coming right back and go home, open that camp and I get all of my people set up and make sure that it's running correctly. And then I'll kiss
2: my dog and my fiance, and then I'll give <laughs> it Well, I, Rhonda, I've I've passed through um, through Senegal uh, quite a few years ago, and hung out and made a bit of music with some local crew, and and uh, I wanted to ask you how you go dancing to the sabar drumming there have you got any skills oh my God. can you keep up with that oh, radical course. radical oh, music <laughs> you can
1: We I live in a village so it, it's like a every almost every other day thing so the girls finally like dragged me out there and they didn't think that i had been paying attention for the entire time <laughs> i was there and i was keeping up with them and they were just like what but you'll see us if you if you've seen the hulu spot yeah you'll see us you'll see us dancing we yeah i pretty much i mean i was watching it every other day like you and i was a dancer so i mean i was looking i was like it looks intricate oh this looks like no no i got it i got it i got (laughs) no worries
2: all time
1: that's the that's the best part that's the best part of being there yeah is is dancing with your girls and having that good time and knowing that they feel safe where you are you know every time we move somewhere they were right there in the morning, like you wake up and there's 40 kids sitting on your lawn, and you're like, What the heck happened? Like, they, somebody said Black Girl Surf was over there. And you wake up and there's like 40 kids waiting outside for you to just come outside. And uh, or when you move again and you try to move all the way to the fifth floor, and you wake up and they're like waiting there on the stairs when you open up the door, they're like there waiting for you on the stairs. Those are mm-hmm. the best parts of, of, of being in Senegal.
2: That's mm. so great. Mm. That's wonderful.
0: I'm um. I'm just curious about how we can support your work. How people who are listening can support your work in the most helpful way possible.
1: Um, the most helpful way at this particular moment, especially when we're trying to move the girls here for the first WSL contest, is probably donations whether it's in-kind or monetarily, because we have a lot of airline fees that we have to cover. And we really do want all of our girls to participate in the, in this particular one. So um, we have a GoFundMe that's been going on. I probably need to refresh it because it's been going on since Haju came for the Tokyo 2020 Olympics. But yeah, that's the best way is GoFundMe at Black Girl Surf in the back. And then uh, just more than anything I think we need is we need vocal support. It's very hard for these girls. When these girls were finally put onto the WSL platform for the first time, and you go look at the comments that are underneath them and they're racist and these are grown men. Yeah. Just racist and crazy. You just these girls need more moral support than any other girls. There's no other group of girls that are gonna need support like these girls, especially with a name like Black Girl Surf, because as soon as you say Black Girl Surf, then you ha- oh, why isn't it White Girl Surf? Because it's not. When I named it, I wasn't thinking about white girls. I was just thinking about black girls that look like me who have been excluded from the surf industry for decades. That's what I was thinking of. But yeah, we're we're pleasantly moving into another season of this company, and I and I'm blessed that we're able to continue because you know what once there's so many groups that come out in one year they're here and the next year they're gone and so here we are in our fourth year like up and running and uh we just feel blessed because we knew that there was a need and we just didn't know how to fill that need now we have it so yeah the best way to do it is to donate to us because you know these girls need Wetsuits. They need, you know, boards. That's one of the things. When you're in West Africa, the, the hardest thing to get is a surfboard. There's nothing harder in West Africa to buy than a surfboard. You may find six for sale, maybe, and they've got the price so high because they know it's a rare thing to do. So that's the main thing that we need is equipment and gear at any given time.
0: Rhonda, so you're you're on the eve of this bringing this incredible dream to fruition you've called it the african triple crown and also at the same time part of this cultural change where um i was i was reading an interview that you did not long ago and um you basically said i've never seen an african-american woman on anything surf related print-wise and now not long ago nika nika miller was on the cover of surf girl which is a small publication, but it's still, I don't know, it meant something to me to see. Mm-hmm.
1: to yeah, see meant to, the, to me too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Surf Girl and See Together magazine. And, you know, surf, Surfer magazine and Surfer magazine, Trans well, that really doesn't, it really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter to us. What we wanted to see was the women, right? It's white women have been in this industry for decades, and we were just waiting for them to, like, hey, sis, let me help you up. You know, let me put you in my space of, of privilege so that you can be seen as well. That didn't happen. But the girls that have published these, you know, with See Together and Surf Girl magazine, even my girls. I've been in I've been in Surf Girl magazine. Haji's been in Surf Girl magazine and one of our girls, um, Alasek, was in, I think, not this month, but the month before. We're all in surf girl magazines, so they're opening up their doors to diversify. But do I care if the men do? No, I don't. I never liked the writing in in surf magazines in the first place, so I can't imagine them trying to to write on a serious subject like what we're going through, right? Because they seem they seem to trivialize it. I saw Surfline tried to dip into the diversity pool, and they got. They, they caught the, the wrath of me when they started off by saying, I, the, I think the first line, first paragraph was, um, I don't ever remember surfing being racist or sexist. That was the first line of a surf line article about diversity. <laughs> and I was like, OK, you guys need to stay out of it. Just go yeah. over there. We didn't. Nobody asked you guys. You like, know, just keep. Just keep misforecasting the waves. Just that's your job. Just do that. (laughs) (laughs) Don't get into, don't get into areas. I know everybody wanted to feel like they needed to dip into the diversity pool without any education information. They were just wanting to be involved in it and stuff started coming out and it was so ignorant and so tone deaf. I was just, cut off all media, right? Unless we're doing it, we're cutting it off. We don't want to see it. But what we saw was, we just seen that it was just, for us it's just not worth the, the, the effort to try to educate you if you're just going to be here for one minute. Like, this is just gonna sell a magazine or you're just gonna get like a thousand likes on this. Um, I'm probably not gonna to talk to you because you haven't done the research. You want us to do the work for you. There was a company that came to us for sponsorship and they called this colored, we realized that they were already going to be tone deaf. And I don't have that time to work with you, to educate you on why you saying, you, you're just a privileged white girl, you don't understand what the colored girls are doing. Now, there's some people that were picked up by them. I didn't tell them the story, but that was for them to research. Even as a black woman, I'm gonna research every single thing I do because I know I'm gonna be scrutinized. Oh, you sold out. Oh, you let them do this. Oh, you let them say that. If I would have had an article and they would have said, oh, this is what the colored girls doing in a caption underneath some bathing suit that we were representing. Mm-hmm. People would have lost their mind, especially the United States would have burnt the whole country down. <laughs> just over the word, <laughs> just over the word. Like Rhonda, what are you doing? They say colored, as soon as they said colored, South Africa has a colored thing too. And I'm just like, you guys realize what colored in the United States is totally different than what you guys say. There was colored fountains and then there were white fountains. If you were colored, you weren't allowed. So we didn't want to hear, I don't want to hear in 2021 that a brand who wants to sponsor me and and my beliefs and when you get me, not only do you get Black Girl Surf, you get the ASI and you get Inkwell and you get Solidarity and Surf, which put on the paddle outs. You have to be behind every single one of those entities in order for me to even be around you. You know, and you have to understand what the mission is, right? The mission, yes, we're going to sell product, but the mission is diversity and real true diversity where you're foundationally building for the next generations, which is why I went to Hurley. I went to Hurley because they were willing to start off and build a foundation that was going to last generations. Of, and when Black Girl Surf is no longer the popular, they still have a program that they're running that looks just like Black Girl Surf. But it's whatever they decide to call it after we're out of the thing. But please start something now so that the future generations know that there's a way, a pathway. I just happen to be the entire pathway. Nobody gets the entire pathway. If you get a coach, your coach is a coach. Your coach may not know how to get in, you into sponsorship. Your coach may not know that your imagery is important. Your coach may, you know, there's things that coaches know that, you know, technically the marketing department doesn't know they don't know that you have to have a certain look or this this type of wave this they need this type of spray in the background to make it you know a viable cover shot you know there's different things that you have to put into different and if you don't know that if you don't have that pathway you're lost and so i've been able to educate myself front to back so you can come in the beginning surfer and like Haju has a deal a life right deal for a movie with a large studio for her life story so i mean not even just Haju as Haju and kk so you tell me one coach and trainer that can get you from a <laughs> to z <laughs> they don't do it but we do it here wonderful uh,
0: yeah so great well done i'm just so excited to see this influx of the next generation of girls girls of color girls from all over the world out in the lineup and um feeling like they belong in the water and to surfing culture. So thank you so much for contributing to that. Thank and you. Allowing so many women to feel like they belong too.
1: It's the belonging. When we walk through the village, 30 little girls with a hand, hand out because they want you to give them a high five as you're going to your apartment because they want to belong to something. And so uh, more importantly than training and everything else, in the sense of belonging is important.
0: Special thanks to Patagonia for making this episode possible. They're a certified B Corporation and founding member of 1% for the planet. Patagonia is recognized internationally for its commitment to product quality and environmental activism. Thanks also to our sound engineer and musician, Shannon Soul Carroll. On behalf of myself, Lauren Hill, and my co-host, Dave Rastovich, thanks for listening with us. We'll be continuing today's conversation on Instagram, where we're at Podcast you mm-hmm.